Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, I'm John Garvey, Practice Lead for Policy at Global Council. Today, we'll be discussing the G7 Leaders Summit, which will take place from Friday to Sunday in Carbis Bay, Cornwall. Joining me are Denzel Davidson, a Global Council Advisor specializing in the EU and multilateral policy, and Charlie Roberts, who is an associate in our climate and sustainability practice. Welcome to both. In this podcast, we're gonna concentrate on three areas. Firstly, the politics of this weekend's meeting, Secondly, the likely policy deliverables, where we'll focus particularly on tax, climate, COVID and trade. And finally, the implications for business. But before we get into the substance, a few reminders about the context. The UK holds the rotating presidency of the G7 throughout 2021. And this leader level summit is the key set piece event following earlier meetings of health, environment, trade, foreign and finance ministers. The latter generated last weekend's agreement on tax coordination on which more later. At these kinds of summit, as little as possible is left to chance. Government advisors known as Sherpas have been meeting intensively all year. The summit's communique or conclusions will have been drafted and redrafted many times. Press conferences and statements are carefully choreographed. But the circumstances this year mean that perhaps more issues than usual remain open and the political stakes are very high. This is the first summit after the disruption of the Trump years. It's the first time leaders will have met in person since the beginning of the pandemic. It's the first such summit meeting for both President Biden and Prime Minister Johnson and Chancellor Merkel's last. And as we'll go on to discuss, all of that means that this summit will be framed as a test for the broader multilateral system. On the policy front, the UK's objective for its presidency is, I quote, to unite leading democracies to help the world fight and then build back better from coronavirus and create a greener, more prosperous future. So the ambition levels are also extremely high. But it's important to remember that the G7 is an informal club. Its decisions don't have legal force. And the communique which leaders will sign off at the end of the summit is effectively a call for further action rather than a binding agreement. It will be up to national legislatures in the EU as to whether or how they implement it. Nonetheless, this weekend's events are a crucial staging post towards the COP climate change conference, which the UK will also host this November. They're an opportunity for the UK to demonstrate a broader leadership role on vaccines, on trade, on economic resilience and cooperation, and on how to deal with Russia and China. So all of this goes to the heart of the UK government's attempts to substantiate the idea of global Britain and to move the narrative on and away from Brexit. So Denzel, Charlie, these agendas always feel a bit like a long shopping list of global goods. What are the most significant things to look out for this weekend? Uh, Well, John, uh, as you said, uh, this is going to be framed as a test, a test for the United States return to the uh, international community as once again a constructive player that's supportive of the rules-based global order, uh, the leading uh, country in among liberal democracies. And it's a test for liberal democracies themselves, whether they can agree on substance. So I think the, the biggest thing to look out for is how much substance can they agree? How much substance they can they, can they agree on the three uh, leading issues? 
Building Back Better, this slogan uh, which has been united and found useful by both a conservative British Prime Minister and a democratic American president, how much uh, they can agree on substance on combating this pandemic and preparing for future pandemics and how much they can agree on substance um, on climate change. And then uh, there is also whether they can show that they can resolve disputes among themselves. Those disputes worsened it during the Trump years. And now we have an American president who wants uh, a liberal democratic unity. Uh, do we, will we find meaningful progress that, that they can, can grip these disputes and resolve them amongst themselves? And then last, the, the elephant or perhaps the, the tiger in the room or the dragon is China. How much, uh, what will they say about China? To what extent is this gathering a gathering against China? Or what extent is it a gathering of to reinforce strength and solidarity among these democracies? So those are things I think we ought to be looking out for. Great. Um, Charlie, is there any, are there any headlines you'd like to pick out on the climate side? Sure. So uh, climate has been a real major focus of the G7 this year. Boris Johnson even set it out as the UK's uh, main foreign policy priority, even in the year of COVID-19. This is mainly in part to them, as you said, hosting the COP26 climate conference in November. So the main focus for them is credentialising themselves, setting themselves out as a leader and ensuring that they're already pressuring other countries to step up and create the fertile ground for the kind of negotiation outcomes they need in November. As you say, they can't make formal commitments at the G7, but it's important that the groundwork is laid uh, far ahead because some of the issues are quite contentious still. So uh, putting it back to you, John, I mean, you set out what this G7 is about. But this is an unusual G7 because it isn't just the traditional G7 members there. Uh, we've got some guests this time. We have uh, two from Asia, uh, South uh, Korea and India. Uh, we have Australia and we have uh, South Africa. What does this mean for, for the G7? What does it tell us about its history and its meaning today? Well, it's probably, it's probably worth walking back a few steps and um, just reminding ourselves what the G7 is and what it isn't. Uh, so the G7 is an informal grouping of the world's um, so-called most developed industrialized economies. So that's the UK, the US, Canada, France, Italy, Germany, and Japan. Uh, Russia joined in 98, but was expelled after the annexation of Crimea in 2014. The EU also attends by convention both um, in the form of the Commission and the Presidency of the Council. And it's up to the presidents, the rotating presidency of the G7, in this case the UK, to invite um, further guests if they wish to. Um, the G7, or G6 as was, has been around since the 1970s when it was uh, formed to deal with the first oil crisis. And it's been dealing with varieties of economic crisis ever since. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, it also began to focus on foreign security and energy policy issues. But I think it's probably important to note that the format has never enjoyed um, what you might call widespread legitimacy. Most summits um, have been marked by some form of protest, anti-globalization, um, poverty, environmental protests. We might expect some of those again this weekend. The format's always been dogged by accusations of secrecy of elitism and probably most importantly its membership doesn't reflect modern economic realities which is one of the reasons that uh, we have the guests invited this time around 
the fact that China and India remain formally excluded from the format is down to the fact that they have a lower GDP per head than anyone in the G7, despite the overall size of their economies. But all of that is very much a bone of contention. Um, in terms of the, the last 10 years, the last 12 years, I think it, it's worth noting that you know, 12 years ago, it was the G20, um, not the G7 or the G8, which was um, the format in which the then UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown used to coordinate the global response to uh, the financial crisis. And it seemed for a while that uh, the G20 might actually supplant the G8 as the predominant economic format, but that hasn't happened. Um, so I think we're going to explore a bit more about, you know, why this counterpoint has developed between G, G7, G8 and G20 on the other side and how, um, how uh, the idea of a league of democracies and a sort of values-driven club has played into that. But first, maybe Denzel, do you want to say something about the UK politics around the summit? What do you think Boris Johnson will be trying to extract from it? Uh, what are the domestic concerns and why is it in Cornwall? Well, uh, to take off take, uh, at the start, why Cornwall? Um, I think the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is personally very fond of Cornwall. He spent many childhood holidays there. Uh, but it's also because uh, Cornwall is one of the less prosperous parts of the United Kingdom. It's a part of the United Kingdom that had big hopes from Brexit, big hopes of huge extra catches of fish. Uh, and uh, of positive change from leaving the EU's common agricultural policy. And uh, those hopes have not yet been entirely fulfilled. So I think the government hopes that this holding this global event in Cornwall will to some extent make up for those disappointments. We shall see whether that works politically. Um, for Boris Johnson, uh, this is a big moment. Uh, this is his first real moment on the world stage. Uh, and in a way, Britain's first real moment on the world stage since Brexit. So it's a chance to prove that despite Brexit, to use that phrase, uh, Britain still counts, it's still at the top table, it can still shape events uh, and get the world to cohere. And it's to give meaning to this slogan we've had since Brexit of Global Britain. Uh, what Global Britain ought to mean was spelt out in the integrated review we had uh, some weeks ago. Uh, but now here's a chance to put it uh, put it into practice uh, and say, here is Global Britain, we left the EU, but here is our global reach, here is our global impact. Uh, this is also uh, going to be, this is President Biden's first trip as president outside the United States. And it's, he's going to have had um, a one-to-one -one with Boris um, the evening before. Uh, but now uh, it's uh, he's going to forward to the, to the G7. This forms part of a bigger trip, followed by NATO summit and the EU summit, and then a meeting with Putin in in Switzerland. Uh, but the people have wondered whether the British-American relationship has been damaged by Brexit, and in particular the Johnson-Biden relationship. Biden is said to see or have seen Boris as a Britain Trump, which is uh, not a not a great place for, for, for perceptions to, to lie. So he'll want to show that there's a strong British-American relationship. Uh, climate change uh, is a very important part of this government's domestic policy. It's important to them uh, politically. And of course, the G7 is a crucial waypoint on the way to COP26. Um, all that said, 
Will a shining success really matter to voters? Probably not. Voters don't really care so much about international summits, even on home soil. After all, Gordon Brown was praised across the world for his role in coordinating the economic response to the Great um, uh, to the Great Recession, but that didn't save him from a bad election defeat a, a year or two later. Nevertheless, uh, national self-perception of success does matter over time. As we know in Britain from uh, self-perception of decline in the 1970s, that affected our politics. And it matters to the government, it matters to the political bubble, whether it's seen as a success or not. And Boris Johnson will be aware that there is an established critique of him as someone fundamentally incompetent and unserious. He will not want anything in this summit to feed into that. And voters might notice failure. Uh, so he will want this to, there were to be substantial achievements from this summit. He won't want uh, the communique just to be so much verbiage, be looking for substantial agreement on climate change, on vaccines, on the unity of the, of the of leading democratic countries, and for his choice to invite for other countries to be seen as successful. Uh, he will also want uh, the right balance to be struck on China. The British government does not want a cold war with China. Uh, at the same time, uh, it has uh, concerns about uh, China's role in the world and the role that uh, Chinese investment can play in countries like Britain. So he'll be very, very keen that we end up with a right balance there, that he isn't forced into a choice between America and China. He won't be alone in that. Other European leaders will be in the same place. And then uh, last on this point, um, this is now an unusually rare meeting between the British Prime Minister and EU leaders. We'll have the presidents of the Commission and the European Council there. We'll have the French president, the German Chancellor, the Italian Prime Minister. Um, they used to meet a lot, but now that Britain's left the EU, they don't. And there's a bit of a spoiling row uh, brewing quite nastily about the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol which the American president may be sucked into as well. Uh, and this is looking really difficult. Uh, no one wanted, I think, to spoil the summit to become an illustration of uh, the disunity among liberal democracies, but it could play a bit of a difficult role. Great, thank you. So the politics of all of this are certainly uh, quite tense. Let's um, let's turn to the policy and maybe let's start with the issue of the moment, which is tax coordination. Um, Denzel, maybe you could recap just in brief what finance ministers agreed last week and how leaders might frame that at the summit. Well, to be precise, uh, in form, uh, finance ministers agreed a paragraph. They agreed paragraph 16 of the communique. In substance, this did two things. Uh, this agreed two pillars of global tax cooperation on multinational companies. Pillar one on where corporate profits should be taxed, and that would give <coughs> reassign rights to market countries, countries where these activities uh, take place and profit is earned. They get new rights to tax some of those profits for the, quote, largest and most profitable multinational enterprises. And then pillar two on the overall level of tax, where G7 ministers committed to a global minimum tax of at least 15% on a country by country basis. 
Now, that's the substance. We'd, and usually the way with these things is that uh, the heads of state and government uh, patch their finance ministers on the back, say, well done, and we will go on and our governments will imp implement this and propagate it in other international fora. So it seems to me um, that there's quite a lot to be unpicked there. Well, there's a lot that remains ambiguous because, as you said, the proposals say new taxing rights will be provided to countries where customers are located on at least 20% of profits over a 10% margin, and that this applies to the largest and most profitable multinational enterprises. But within that, we need a definition of profit. We need a definition of the largest multinational enterprises, the range of tax that could be levied, and the way that that redistribution mechanism would work. Uh, I doubt that leaders will get into uh, any of that detail this weekend, but it's uh, just to note that a lot of work actually remains to be done. Um, that's, just... uh, that's exactly right, John. I mean, there is, there is much more to be done. Uh, there are these defin definitions worked out about the tax base that's been reading today. Uh, do uh, the largest, most profitable multinational enterprises, do, should they properly include for these purposes financial services companies? Uh, apparently, the British government and other European governments argue not. So uh, an awful lot of uh, policy important um, uh, policy details we work through. Uh, the idea is, as you've said, is that leaders are very unlikely to get into this, but it'll be moved to the to the technical level of the G20 and the OECD. Uh, this is the this inclusive framework which is dealing with all these issues. It's an OECD initiative. Uh, certainly, the hope among G7 finance ministers is that it won't need another political moment to move things forward, but we'll see about that. Uh, but the next uh, waypoint is um, is the G20 finance ministers meeting next month, and then uh, it'll go on the technical channel. We'll see uh, what progress uh, they make. But uh, as you flag, there's some pretty controversial things there. Uh, there are national ratifications to come. And uh, indeed, there is a big question on uh, what happens with digital service taxes how they phase out uh, and how this might phase in. Yeah, and in terms of the politics, I mean, it, it seems to me that the US has actually played this quite cleverly because uh, the agreement on 15% has given it cover to raise its overall level of taxation via a global agreement, but the tech companies uh, aren't actually necessarily going to pay um, much more globally on this. So. We'll see how this all plays out, but uh, France and others have noted that, yes, as you say, there is still quite a lot of work to be done. Moving on to climate, um, Charlie, this is an element of the summit that is inevitably going to be scrutinized particularly closely. Um, it seems to me that the UK's main objective here will be to set a high level of ambition and momentum ahead of the COP in November, but that does actually seem at risk in a couple of key areas. For example, on climate finance, UK and the US have um, agreed to double their contributions over the next few years, but I don't think we've seen any such commitments from any of the other G7 members. That is likely to pose problems, isn't it, for G20 and other middle income countries who will want to see uh, G7 leadership. 
what's your view on all of that and how how do you expect it how do you expect this summit to play out more broadly on climate between the g7 core countries and the guests who have very different interests Yes, so as you said, the question of climate finance is going to be a really critical one uh, this weekend. As we go into COP26, it's highly likely that the level of climate finance and ambition realised there could become a deciding factor of its success, uh, largely due to it obviously being a very emotive topic for a very engaged civil society to mobilise around, but also because of the context of this year, giving much more awareness and concern about the levels of inequality that are already emerging in terms of climate impacts. Uh, but as you say, the UK and US have already agreed to double their climate finance, but the key figure that's really on the table is this $100 billion a year that developed nations agreed to mobilize a year by 2020 in the Copenhagen Accord that was agreed in 2009. Uh, that figure has not been reached. Uh, it's currently sitting around 20 billion short and the COP26 presidency made reaching this figure a real core goal of the COP26 summit. The UK obviously has recently also received a lot of uh, attention on the level of aid that they're giving uh, because of their cuts to their foreign aid budget. So that's an area that then they need to really be setting themselves out this weekend as hosts of the G7. Boris Johnson is apparently planning to present to the attendees of the G7 summit a Marshall Plan, he's calling it, uh, which is going to focus on treating the mobilisation of this finance more through a new uh, multi-billion dollar international development bank um, and to try and treat it in a similar way that the China treats its Belts and Roads initiative, having a focus on low carbon infrastructure and that this might be a way to reach the uh, 100 billion figure. But in terms of actually reaching agreement this weekend, there's already been the positive communique from uh, the G7 finance ministers that they were going to try and reach it, but it'll be really hard to say whether any progress is made on this this weekend, uh, even regardless of whether a statement comes out. As, as I said, they've technically already all committed to this back in 2009. Um, so it'll be more about laying the groundwork for COP26 discussions on this topic, uh, where they're actually all meant to be committing to a new finance goal for 2025. Great. And just just to check, this idea of a climate Marshall plan, I mean, is, is this um, a sort of classic bounce on the eve of the summit to sort of generate some headlines and the kind of momentum that I talked about? Or is this a idea that has been sort of worked up at a more granular level and sort of has a bit of support from attendees or more broadly? Well, what I would say is that it's a new announcement. Uh, I'd not heard anything about it until the press releases came out recently, uh, but it is more in line with how the US in particular is trying to approach climate finance. Earlier in the year, President Biden was talking about also approaching debt relief as a way of reaching climate finance figures um, with an idea of debt forgiveness in exchange for green investments. So I think the goal that the Marshall Plan idea is trying to reach is a way to add up to the figure without perhaps committing significant new sums, particularly as the guests who will be attending, particularly Australia. 
we wouldn't be expecting any significant new figures from them. And I don't think the UK is looking to commit much more than the 11 billion uh, it's already committed. Uh, Great, could 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 I just touch on another potential point of conflict that has um, made the news recently. So we saw uh, last week that the EU's um, proposals on a carbon border adjustment mechanism um, were leaked. And these proposals would effectively tax carbon intensive imports into the EU from countries with weaker carbon policies based on um, the cost of emissions set under uh, the EU emission trading scheme. So I mean, it's interesting that these proposals, which, uh, as I understand it, wouldn't come into force until 2026, were leaked just before the summit. Do you think that is an attempt to uh, provoke some kind of action in this area? And how do you think that's going to play out between um, the core members and the guests? Well, the idea of a carbon border adjustment mechanism has already been given quite a lot of support by the core members of the G7, apart from obviously the European members implicitly through the EU, which is the only place which currently has committed to actually bring one into existence. Um, The UK, the US and Japan have all said that they're looking to explore the idea, but it's largely because it's concerned about domestic products being undercut when uh, ambitious uh, carbon pricing policies are put in place. So, Although there is a lot of appetite for the idea, it would need to actually be coupled with really ambitious domestic carbon pricing policies before it could even exist. The EU is going to have to take away lots of the support measures it currently has uh, for heavy industry removing the free allowances under its emissions trading system in order for it to be physically possible to have the carbon border adjustment mechanism. And even then, it's still not clear that it would even be compliant with the WTO rules. So despite excitement around the carbon border tax, it's still uh, quite a gray area. And certainly some of the, again, guest members that are joining Australia and India, um, they've already voiced very firm opposition to a carbon border tax. I think I think Pascal Lamy actually came out last week and said it wouldn't be compliant with um, the WTO because yeah. of because of uh, because of the free allowances that EU industries continue to get. And presumably, if you're India or Australia, you just view that as a sort of form of double subsidy. Then, yeah, it's been considered um, quite. A protectionist uh, policy to introduce. Obviously, if they do reduce the, if they do remove the free allowances, it does uh, remove that aspect. Uh, but I think there will still be major questions around protectionism, particularly around uh, as appetite grows to expand it to other sectors that aren't actually covered under emission trading systems. So, for some of the countries that have said they're interested in taking up a carbon border adjustment mechanism like the US who don't have a functioning emissions trading system it's hard to understand how that wouldn't just really function as protectionism without a really strong carbon pricing policy so perhaps it means that um, there would have to be a sudden rush uh, to implement very strict carbon pricing policies among members of the G7 that don't have them yet but even so I would remain uh, skeptical that anything other than some kind of joint agreement to explore a carbon border adjustment would emerge from this weekend. It's still quite uh, in its infancy as a technical concept. Great. Thank you. Um, 
we should move on to COVID, where the meeting is obviously taking place against uh, a difficult backdrop in terms of the variants and rising numbers. Um, the UK is likely to use the summit to call for an increase both in vaccine production and an increase in financial commitments to COVAX. Uh, I think we're also expecting to see a bit more on the agreement reached by health ministers on a clinical trials charter, which would accelerate vaccine development by harmonizing standards. And all of that, I suppose, plays into Boris's, Boris Johnson's call to vaccinate the entire world by the end of next year, which remains a very ambitious target. Denzel, what do you see as the significant areas to watch out for here? Well, uh, first, there's the American call for a vaccine IP waiver. I don't think we'll see much agreement on that. Uh, the Europeans are, are, are against it, again, by Europeans. The UK, despite having left the EU, is in the European camp on that. Uh, and then, as you say, there is harmonization of clinical trials. And what people are trying to achieve here is um, to reduce vaccine development time and speed up vaccine rollout, all of which, of course, should end up saving lives. So countries are expected to sign up to a G7 Therapeutics and Vaccines Clinical Trials Charter. This will commit G7 to prioritizing support for randomized controlled trials, for key public health needs, uh, and uh, looking at uh, designing them in a streamlined way in terms of size, methodology, consistency with good clinical practices and, and ethical principles. And this would be make a, a big difference for a future uh, pandemic uh, response. Um, and then they will want, they may want to make it easier to recognize other countries' uh, clinical trials. Again, uh, very helpful for vaccine rollout. Uh, and then we can uh, look perhaps at a pandemic preparedness partnership uh, on how to reduce um, vaccine development time from 300 to 100 days. Uh, and that's likely to include. Um, an agreement on pooling uh, funding to finance global vaccine manufacturing capacity and research and development. So we may see some, see some commitments there, um, as well as uh, the clinical trials charter I've spoken about. I think on, on the um, pandemic preparedness partnership, the UK is also planning to host a summit next year with um, CEPI, the Coalition for Global Epidemic Preparedness Innovation. Um, and that is essentially an investment raising summit, um, which I think uh, the UK government will hope to get some commitments towards at this summit. I think this is another area where um, the UK will be looking for people to put their hands in the pockets or say that they're gonna put their hands in the pockets as far as possible. But uh, we haven't seen an awful lot of signs of that happening so far. So I wonder, I wonder whether or not we will um, see any big announcements in this area or if it will be seen to actually fall slightly short. Yes, and what's going to be, what is a challenge that these all these are all aware of is that if um, the G7 don't provide the global public good of uh, more vaccines for all, then others will. So there is a geostrategic element to this question. There's a, there's a nice, um, segue there into trade where again we're I don't think expecting necessarily all that much on substance we'll get the usual sort of warm words about the importance of WTO reform 
Um, but uh, I don't think there's any chance of um, a breakthrough on the appellate body. The US has signaled that it's not moving there. So I think the interesting um, geostrategic point, um, which you uh, alluded to actually at the beginning of this discussion, is what Biden can persuade the rest of uh, the summit and the summit communique to say about China, where um, the EU is going to be at the more cautious end and the UK actually may find itself slightly caught between the EU and the US. Um, it's notable that the trade minister's communique didn't actually mention China directly, but where do you think, where do you think this, uh, this will go? Well, uh, we've had our first leaks. The draft language uh, for the communique has been circulated and it seems to be leaking out in Brussels. And there's some surprisingly forward-leading language chat there on China, which we'll have to see whether it's fives, calling on, on the G7 to uh, closely consult and cooperate uh, on um, multifaceted approaches to China, uh, which includes elements of cooperation, competition, and systemic rivalry. Now, they all agree on those three elements, cooperation, competition, and rivalry. Sometimes they have different names. Uh, but uh, this, where, what language they end up with will be an interesting test of their unity and their front-footedness on China. Uh, as you say, um, most don't want to be uh, caught in a, just uh, to, to start a cold war uh, on China. Uh, on trade, by the way, I think uh, that the same leak shows uh, a determination to resolve current trade disputes, and that's important. Uh, because they're, they've been rowing about tariffs, about the, uh, Boeing, Airbus and the like. And it would be meaningful if they announced a shared determination to resolve uh, those disputes. That would show that America's return uh, to a cooperative, cooperative relationship uh, has, has borne some, some real fruit. Um, and as you say, there's, there's bound also to be some uh, fairly bromide-like language. But bromides also matter because in the Trump years, there was an absence of bromides. And that was a telling symptom that of the dysfunctionality of the relationship that the US really did believe in a, in a slightly autarkic policy, America first, and didn't believe in win-win games. Uh, so even if, there are, even if there's just some uplift about trade cooperation, that at least shows that uh, the postures of these governments is towards win-win solutions if they can find them. So just finishing off by turning to the implications for business, um, I mean, I think we're, we're saying here that actually the, the big picture um, and uh, to some extent the warm words that should be generated, we hope will be generated by this summit, really do matter because um, this is an opportunity, um, a vital opportunity for uh, liberal economies to get back together and say that we are going to try and defend and reinvigorate the multilateral system and that will have real impacts particularly on trades and we hope diffusing disputes before uh, before they emerge. Are there other specifics that you think um, business should watch out for in particular in terms of um, the communique and the language that will come out of the various press conferences? Well, uh, we'll have to see if they give 
any extra uh, push on, on the tax agenda, as we've discussed, uh, there's some tricky stuff to be dealt with. Uh, they have, the finance ministers did agree to coordinate how they would phase out um, uh, their digital service taxes and bring in this, this new tax coordination. But there is a, there's a big, there's a big problem there uh, that uh, the EU and the UK both want to bring in new taxes that aren't uh, effectively um, directed at uh, at the US tech giants, but have a, a broader catch of online activity in the UK, a mooted online sales tax in the EU, a digital levy. So whether they deal with this, try to resolve this upcoming problem or not, will be interesting and important. Charlie, any final thoughts on climate? Um, what should we watch out for in particular in the coming months? Um, could you could you sketch out a path between now and um, the COP in November? Sure. So currently there are the formal negotiation sessions by the UN subsidiary bodies going on. Those are in many ways, although much less high profile than uh, any summits that leaders attend. Those are the meetings where the actual groundwork is being laid for the things that we could argue have met success at COP, like the agreements around Article 6 and uh, international carbon trading mechanisms. Uh, that's also where we might see some extra movement towards climate finance, although obviously, as we've said, the mobilisation of the G7 and larger nations are the key factors. But in between now and then, apart from these negotiation sessions, we've got the biodiversity COP, uh, which the UK has already stated that they want to be very closely twinned to the climate COP as a tackling the twin crises together of climate and biodiversity. Uh, that currently allegedly is not going well, the negotiation sessions, but uh, as we've already seen from the G7, they've committed to uh, a global 30 by 30, 30% of land and sea protected by 2030. So there's perhaps hope for that. In the meantime, it's the main thing will be on laying the groundwork for an in-person session, uh, and that will be closely connected to any deal on vaccines that we can secure at this weekend. Great, thank you. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion, but I'm afraid we're out of time. We will be watching uh, very closely for what comes out of the summit this weekend, and we will uh, be following up with um, some further analysis next week. As always, if you, um, your business or your investment is exposed to any of the issues that we've discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find contact details for Denzel, Charlie and I and our sectoral teams on the Global Council website at www.globalcouncil.com or via the link in the podcast notes. So thank you very much to Denzel and Charlie and thanks to you for listening. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.